0: Each and every day we put on our hard hats and our steel-toed boots. We kiss our families goodbye and we begin the tough work to energize the great United States of America. For over 20 years, Scott Angel has led the fight to balance the 3 E's: environment, energy, and economy. Now, he's sitting down for a cup of coffee with the most influential energy leaders in the country to celebrate and elevate the American energy worker. This is Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice
1: of the USA energy worker.
0: Good morning from the USA energy worker studio in the heart of Cajun country, where today we are focused on celebrating and elevating the contributions of our USA energy workers as they help balance the three E's of energy, environment, and economy. No doubt. No doubt our USA energy workers since World War II have made amazing contributions to building the world's largest economy. Over 6,000 everyday products from our traditional oil and gas workers alone. And as goes America's access to affordable energy, so goes her economic performance. We build more homes. We sell more cars. We experience more robust travel and retail performances when we have access to affordable energy. Not cheap, but affordable energy. I'm reminded that we've had six recessions from 1973 to 2019, and all have been preceded by a spike in energy prices. We all know that pricing is a function of supply and demand. That is why at USA Energy Workers, we believe the best path forward to achieving affordable energy is by increasing supply. Asking OPEC to increase supply as the White House did in 2021, is not a solution. It's an insult, an insult to USA energy workers. You see, over the years, our energy policy is beginning to result in ceding our energy superiority to China. Decades ago, we ceded much of our manufacturing superiority to China, and now energy superiority is on the menu. You know, when you think of the rare earth mineral processing and the rare earth mineral mining that happens as we rely on China and Asia, we are putting ourselves in a position to rely on folks who perhaps do not share our values, often do not share our values, for this so-called energy transition. All of this being done in the name of climate, when the science simply doesn't add up. But don't take my word for it. In February of 2023, the Institute of Energy Research issued a report that concluded that domestic production of oil and gas is better for the environment than importing production from foreign sources. I think you'd also be interested in knowing that a federal document issued by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in November of 2016 by the Obama-Biden administration concluded, and I'm quoting here, that United States greenhouse gas emissions would be higher if Bohm were to have no lease sales. It goes on to say that emissions would be higher due to exploration, development, production, and transportation of oil from international sources being more carbon intensive. Again, this is a report, it was a federal report that concluded if we did not have these lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico, we would have more carbon emissions because we would have to backfill our supply needs from foreign energy, often from international sources, being more carbon-intensive. Yet, despite that conclusion reached by the Obama-Biden administration in that federal document in November of 2016, that's exactly the energy policy our nation has adopted. We have paused and canceled offshore lease sales, and now we are asking foreign countries to backfill our needs with higher carbon-intensity production. It's hard for us to understand at USA Energy Workers why we would be favoring uh, places that are not American. We believe we should be favoring LaRose, Lafayette, Lake Arthur, and Lake Charles, and Lubbock over Libya, Midland over Moscow, Abbeville over Algeria, Kaplan over Kuwait, Odessa over Oman, and Dulac over Dubai. We really believe that we have to ask ourselves a question. What are we really doing here by having an American energy policy that first pauses, then cancels offshore lease sales, all the while creating pain at the pump, especially for those most vulnerable among us, folks on the poverty line, single moms transporting kids across town to daycare, and our senior citizens on a fixed income. Many experts tell us and believe that about 40% of overall inflation is caused by energy inflation. If you wanna lower the cost of food, Increase domestic energy production. If you want to lower inflation, increase domestic energy production. If you want to reduce pain at the pump, increase domestic energy production. Do we really want to get out of this funk of these higher prices? Every time we go to the grocery store, it just seems to go up and up and up and up. If we really want to get out of that funk, let's make domestic energy production a foundation of our economy and our environment. In today's show, we will talk about the many advantages of offshore energy. Offshore energy we have embraced for over five decades between 13 different United States presidents of different parties. Just to restate that, we have embraced in this country offshore energy for over five decades between 13 different U.S. presidents of different parties. And now that offshore energy is being vilified Like no other industry, perhaps since the days of Prohibition, the big loser is the energy consumer and the environment. Today's guest on our podcast is the president of the National Ocean Industries Association doing business under the acronym of NOIA. Eric Melita is the leader of that organization. He's the voice. He's an advocate for the offshore energy industry and has testified on multiple occasions to the U.S. Congress and appeared on numerous major news outlets regarding energy. I know Eric to be a man of integrity. I've had the opportunity to work with him now for almost 15 years. He has been at the forefront to develop and establish industry programs to enhance safety and environmental performance, including the NOIA ESG Network, the Environmental Partnership, and the Center for Offshore Safety. But more than just that, Eric has a history of serving people. From 2000 to 2002, he served as an attorney in the solicitor's office of the United States Department of Interior. Very, very important work. He also served on active duty in the United States Army from 1995 to 2000, and in the U.S. Army Reserve from 2000 to 2004, before resigning as, at the rank of major. He's received many awards. He is originally from Pennsylvania. He and his wife, Beth, now live in the suburbs of our nation's capital with their four children, Will, Helen, Evie, and Jake. Eric, we want to say to you, my friend, good morning and welcome to the USA Energy Worker Podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me. And I wanted to personally thank you for your leadership on behalf of the state of Louisiana and the country. I think your listeners should know and understand that your work back in 2010 was pivotal in getting our industry back to work so that we can get leasing and permitting back underway. And you were a champion back then and you continue to be a champion now. And I wanna thank you for that. I also wanna thank you for your service as the longest serving director of the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, balancing the three E's as you talk about all the time. It was great to have somebody leading that bureau uh, and, and having a focus on energy, environment, and our economy. So thank you for your service and everything you've done. Uh, you've been a champion and a leader, and, and it's it's paid dividends for our country in so many ways.
0: Well, thank you for those kind words, and be sure to give Beth and, and, and the four kids my regards. And uh, I know uh, with young kids, this is, can be a busy, busy time for you guys running around and doing the things that – that, that families do. But, but thank you for not only being a, a great public servant, a great industry leader, but a great family man as well. I believe that that family job is absolutely the most important role that you play. So let's start off by talking about the Gulf of Mexico as a energy producing region. I, I'm looking to make sure that our listeners across the nation really understand some of the background on the Gulf, maybe some of the production numbers, the history, uh, how does it compete globally? You know, it's importance to the U.S. jobs, all those kind of things that we would begin to help define and describe, if you would, the Gulf of Mexico. Why don't you
1: take us through a little bit of that? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And the Gulf of Mexico sometimes goes a bit under the radar, but it is really the backbone of U.S. energy production. It's been a premier producing region for our country for decades. We refer to it as a strategic national energy asset. And we've been producing there, you know, since the 40s. I think we had a 75th anniversary of that Kerr-McGee well that was the first one drilled kind of out of sight, miles off the shore, using a converted uh, Navy barge to do some of that work. But we've been producing more than a million barrels of oil a day out of the Gulf of Mexico since 97. And we hit record production, peak production, just before the pandemic in 2019, Uh, And that dipped a little bit during the pandemic, but we're back up close to almost 2 million barrels a day. And very few people out in the public really understand and appreciate that. I think a lot of it's overtaken by places like the Permian and North Dakota and the Eagleford. But this has been a region that's been producing at a high level, reliably, uh, safely, uh, with a low emissions profile uh, that, that you talked about. And it it has a trajectory to continue doing that for decades. You know, We we commissioned a study with uh, energy and industrial advisory partners. And if if we have the ability to get leases and have the permitting and regulations in place, then that can climb. That can climb to 2.4, 2.5 million barrels a day and continue to sustain us for a long time. It supports 370,000 jobs. Of course, most of those are along the Gulf Coast. Uh, It's about 100,000 jobs in Louisiana, about 150,000 in, in Texas, 28,000 in Alabama and 20,000 in Mississippi. So the Gulf Coast is the key region. Of course, the backyard of the Gulf of Mexico is is Louisiana, Port Fouchon and, and that area. As NOIA, our member companies are dotted throughout uh, Louisiana. But there are companies in every state in our in our nation that benefit from the business of the Gulf of Mexico. And a lot of people don't realize that either. There are 57,000 jobs supported outside the Gulf Coast region. And that's important because When you look at the thousands and thousands of companies that support the Gulf of Mexico oil and gas sector, uh, you need those experts that might be in other places. It could be a cement and composite materials type of engineering company. It could be a buoy manufacturer out of Maine. It could be uh, an environmental consulting group. But we work together as a country to produce energy in the best way, and we should be focusing on the U.S. as the best place to do that. Uh, so we got the jobs we we got the energy security and we also have funding that comes from the gulf of mexico Uh, it is the one of the largest sources of revenue to the federal government outside of tax collections you're looking at four to five billion dollars a year coming in from oil and gas royalties and bonus payments and rentals Uh, and that's important money over five billion of that money has gone to the land and water conservation fund uh, supporting over 45,000 projects throughout the country some of that money goes to inner city parks and wildlife programs and recreation programs it's called the outdoor recreation legacy partnership program Uh, that's been a program that has sent money to places like newark new jersey and milwaukee and philly and atlanta and that's been a a huge bonus to those communities that would like to have uh, the ability to provide those services uh, to the underprivileged in their neighborhoods That's tens of millions of dollars going to that program, and we see that announced by Interior every year. Go Mesa in your backyard, uh, coastal resiliency for Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, those areas. uh, Hundreds of millions flowing from offshore oil and gas to make sure we have a resilient coastline. And more recently, uh, the Great American Outdoors Act, which takes and, and commits money from offshore oil and gas to maintain our national treasures, our national parks. So we are in a position where we, as the offshore oil and gas sector, um, are providing that money, but you can only provide that money if you support it through federal policy, and that's through leasing and permitting. And we also have you know, the, the best and greatest companies when it comes to innovation and technology and being in the lead on technologies that provide zero carbon, low carbon, decarbonization approaches that would be required for um, these goals that are being set when it comes to addressing climate change it's our companies in the gulf of mexico that can do that and that are doing that and are committed to that so it's an ecosystem it's an energy hub it's a national security asset and uh, we we need to make sure that we recognize all these benefits that flow out of that region and without that region we wouldn't have them
0: yeah well you know i think that that explanation i want to come back and give a special shout out to your membership. I've had the opportunity to work with your members, 120 member organization, totally engaged, totally focused, certainly on producing the energy to fuel our great nation, but also focused on doing it the right way, doing the right thing the right way. And you know, Eric, I've had the pleasure of attending some of your organization events, and it's really... uh, thrilling to be able to engage and just see how passionate the men and women are of the organization really striving to know that America can be the strongest boldest place on the planet only with affordable energy and they understand the Gulf of Mexico is one of those regions as you so uh, expertly explained so Again, special shout out to the NOIA membership, and we, we look for NOIA to be a continued leader on the national conversation, right? I thought it was interesting, as you were explaining some of the environmental-type benefits, the revenues uh, that come from oil and gas operations, and how our nation over the years have dedicated a great deal of that money to Environmental type projects, so that for every uh, barrel or mcf barrel of oil or mcf of gas that that is produced, not only does the federal government get a tremendous amount of royalty income. And I, I used the number five to $6 billion on average there, depending again on the price of commodity and, and the production rates. 2019, I know was incredible. 2020 kind of took a hit because of COVID, but that number starting to bounce back. It could bounce back even further. I would share with our, our listeners, if we had federal policy that would really motivate folks, because right now it's kind of scary when you read all of the things that are coming out of our nation's capital and you're looking at a 40 year investment, whether or not, not the things that are coming out of Washington are going to have this chilling impact because, at the end of the day, capital goes where capital is treated well. But I'm so excited about the fact that you mentioned the whole environmental piece, the the parks, the national parks, uh, the Land and Water Conservation Act. This is really stuff that not only impacts the things that you would typically see, but you talked about some of the inner city uh, examples. And I think when we think of Land and Water Conservation Act, we may not be thinking in areas where we're talking about maybe a neighborhood park or something like that, where we're investing those kind of monies for children and playgrounds. So in a lot of ways, not only is the offshore industry producing the energy to help fuel this country, but also doing it in a way that provides a revenue to fund some very, very important things that actually make life better for all. So I want, I want to thank you for that. Again, when we think of the Gulf, right, and certainly traditionally the Gulf of Mexico has been this all-in gas sector, this, this place where I think right now, the last time I looked at it was about 13 percent of the oil that comes out of America comes from the Gulf of Mexico. But also, in addition to that, I think we believe, you and I, Eric, believe that the Gulf of Mexico is not a one-trick pony, that there are other energy opportunities there as we move into more technologies and innovation, whether it's uh, hydrogen, whether it's wind, whether it's some of the carbon capture and
1: sequestration. Tell us a little bit about what you see
0: as an innovation hub for the Gulf.
1: That's a great point, Scott. The Gulf of Mexico really is an energy hub. When you think about the expertise, that's all along that coastline. We've got universities, we've got the infrastructure in place through the facilities, through the pipelines, through uh, the the, the projects that are in place, but also through the human capital that we have uh, throughout that region, the engineering expertise and just the know-how and and the will to get it done. But if you look at the, the whole region of the Gulf of Mexico, it's an area we've been developing and working in for decades, and that means that we know a lot about it. We know a lot about the geology, and that geology is well suited for storing carbon dioxide. We can sequester it, and back in 2021, the government through Congress, through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, actually finally created authorization for the Department of the Interior to lease that acreage so that we can get out there and and, and inject CO2 uh, into the subsea geology as a means of mitigating GHG emissions in the atmosphere. So we are well positioned now because we have a coastline there with industrial facilities that where we can uh, put in the equipment to capture the CO2. And we have the expertise and the ability to transport it through vessels or pipelines out to our OCS subsea infrastructure and geology. And then we can inject it and and permanently store it in that region. So when you look at the Gulf of Mexico, CCS is one of many different types of technologies that we can advance there and ultimately become a global leader in a technology like that. And you add on to that, the opportunities that we have through offshore wind, most of the companies that we see now engaged or a lot of the companies we see now engaged in Atlantic offshore wind projects are, are, are working out of the Gulf Coast. The, the, these are companies that have historically been in the oil and gas field. They are marine construction companies. They are fabricators. They are vessel support companies. They are companies that are in the oil and gas side and are now designing the vessels to get out there and do the work. These are companies along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana. And, and they're right there in their backyard. They have the ability to get out there and help build out a wind sector in the Gulf of Mexico. We have uh, the first lease that's in place. Uh, I think that's offshore uh, the Lake Charles area. And then when you look at, at, holistically at what can be done in the Gulf of Mexico, then you can think about things like hydrogen. You could think about green hydrogen with offshore wind. You could think about um, blue hydrogen with natural gas opportunities. There's so much that can be done, and and we have a basin there that has all the attributes to make it happen when it comes to the people, the infrastructure, the skills, the geology, uh, the the, the facilities along the coastline. Uh, We can do it all there. And we can continue to drive the Gulf of Mexico as a global energy leader in all technologies, all energy uses, uh, because w- we can do it. We've done it and we'll be able to continue to draw investment there. If you think about oil and gas, it's it's about a 30 billion dollar annual um, industry in the Gulf of Mexico. So we can build on, add to that, and we expect that to continue for decades. Well, you know, when you think of the Gulf of Mexico, and
0: again, going back to what you talked about, the Kerr-McGee well, and maybe in the late 40s, and then kind of building out to where we are today, where again, 13% of the nation's oil comes from from the Gulf of Mexico, and then where you kind of referenced, we have the human capital, and, and certainly at USA Energy Workers, we certainly believe that it is the human capital, right, that makes all this possible certainly the inventions the machinery and all that first starting with a human really understanding coming up with the design and then obviously the execution of this equipment to be able to do the job so and 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 thank you for shouting out to the universities uh, that are located on the gulf coast again whether that be in texas louisiana mississippi or alabama doing amazing work in developing the next generation of leaders there and we do agree and you and i come from uh, all of the above generation. And the reason we come from a, all of the above generation is that we understand how important energy is to the future of our country, both from an energy security standpoint, economic uh, opportunities. And we all know that nobody does it better than than the red, white, and blue. And so doing it here kind of does, if you would, immunizes from some of the geopolitical issues that our country faces. If we do more here and less in other regions of the world, then we have uh, immunized ourselves from some of those issues. And and of course, I saw just recently where there's been a reaction to some of the geopolitical decisions in the Middle East that have caused a, a spike in energy prices overnight. Again, the Gulf of Mexico, certainly when you take a look at the contributions, and I've heard these stories where there's someone who was working perhaps in the North Sea that originated in an idea uh, somewhere from the Gulf of Mexico or there was somebody who was working in Alaska doing some challenging work in Alaska in oil and gas exploration there. And again, that, that idea originated and was built upon by that USA Energy working coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. So again, we want to uh, hats off. To, to all of our USA energy workers across the country. Obviously, today's focus is on, on offshore, given Eric's extensive background in that space. Tell us a little bit, Eric, future potential of the GOM. You know, are we done? Uh, have we peaked? Uh, we hear a lot about peak oil, yet we see all these forecasts kind of now being discarded. What's your personal view? We, we got any
1: golf left in the Gulf of Mexico? We do. It's a premier investment basin. It's got high prospectivity moving forward. We, we've looked at some of the... Um, trends and discoveries globally and we've seen that globally the Gulf of Mexico has only trailed Guyana when it comes to discoveries billions of barrels that have been discovered but we need federal policy to support that in order for companies to want to continue to get out there and engage in pure exploration activities and find those next barrels because production declines from existing basins and you got to find ways to restore and replenish that you need to do that through exploration activities. So we're going to need support out of Washington to make sure that the certainty and predictability is there through leasing and through permitting. But there is a long runway for the Gulf of Mexico and our studies that we've worked on show that we can continue to produce over the next 30 years or so at the 1.9 million barrel a day level on average through the next 20 or 30 years. That is significant. If you think about the Gulf of Mexico producing close to 2 million barrels a day, that would put it, if it was a country, as the 11th or 12th leading nation in terms of oil production in the world. This is a, a major producing center for oil. And if you disrupt that, think about the impact that could have on energy affordability. We see what happens in Libya, where they produce about a million barrels a day. The slightest thing happens in Libya, we see the price of oil shoot up. And if that would happen in a place like the Gulf of Mexico, you could have impacts on a global marketplace. So we want to continue to sustain it. If if we see that that investment shift to other parts of the world, we know that you would have barrels with higher carbon emissions intensity. We know that it wouldn't be done under the strict environmental regulatory oversight and attention to detail that our companies have. Uh, So the best place to do that, of course, is here. But we do have a long runway. We do expect there to be, over the next 20, 30 years, an opportunity to continue to invest about thirty billion dollars a year, and perhaps see the employment levels go up from three hundred seventy thousand to four hundred twenty thousand or four hundred forty thousand. We have we have room for growth, uh, so we're bullish on the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we we see investment continue to come online, but we see also see some vulnerabilities because of policies out of Washington.
0: Well, amen, brother. And, and, and let me kind of go back to that, because what I hear you saying is uh, consistent with, I think, the message that several of us have had. You know, at one time, if we kind of go back into the Gulf of Mexico, it was a producing basin, produce, 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 produce. And we probably were not as aware, certainly not as aware as we are now of the environmental metrics, the really positive environmental metrics of the GOM production. And the way you describe it and put it together, what I hear you say is that it's not only good for jobs, it's not only good for the economy, it's not only good for energy production. What I hear you say is also better to get that barrel produced here in the Gulf of Mexico than from perhaps a foreign source that has more carbon intensity production. So, in a way, is it accurate to conclude, Eric, that? What's good for the economy when it comes to Gulf of Mexico production is also
1: good for the environment? Absolutely. And we looked at that statement by Boehm back in, I guess that was a 2016 time frame. 2016. When they they said that not having lease sales, you'd have higher emissions. But we went went to task. We we heard some questions being raised about that by some officials in the current administration. So we went to work and, and we worked with ICF International and they did a study last year that compared the carbon intensity per barrel of Gulf of Mexico production and U.S. production to the rest of the world. They looked at and created a profile of a barrel of oil from 103 countries. And what it showed is that a a U.S. barrel, just coming from the United States, putting the Gulf of Mexico aside, has 23% lower um, carbon emissions per barrel than the average foreign barrel of oil in Gulf of Mexico has 46% lower carbon emission intensity than the average foreign barrel. So right there, we have a strong data set where they created a study that makes it apples to apples, looking at all the different factors and all the different ways you could have GHG emissions during operations. And if you think about that, when globally there's 100 million barrels being produced every day, every one of those barrels being produced outside the U.S. could have a pretty significant impact on the amount, it, when you look at the amount of GHGs that are increasing over what we could have if we did it here in the U.S. and if we did it here particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. The GOM stands out. It's been not just ICF through Anoya sponsored study. It's been through McKinsey. It's been through um, RYSTAD. It's been through Wood Mackenzie. All these groups have come out and said the same thing. And it's well recognized that when you produce energy from the offshore region, you're going to get scale, you're going to get efficiency, you're going to get lower methane, and you're going to get overall operations with lower greenhouse gas emissions from that operation.
0: So the two metrics that the experts tell us that drive climate change are CO2 and, of course, uh, methane. And in, in both of those metrics, I'm aware uh, the, the Gulf is, is you know actually superior, uh, number two on the planet when it comes to carbon intensity. And among the best when it comes to uh, the percentage of methane that is flared, vented, uh, when compared to the volume of produced gas. I think that's 1.25 percent. So really, really, really incredible metric. So, so, Eric, if if we've, you know, several have joined in and have uh, provided reports and research and made these conclusions and it's not debatable when we think of the nation's policy today to pause and cancel lease sales and then now to have a new five-year lease sale that instead of having during a, a period of five years anywhere from maybe 11 to 20, 25 lease sales, this one uh, calls for, I think, three lease sales. And who knows, right, even if those happen because of how much animosity there is to offshore energy. So one of the things that I think you made clear to me, I want to make sure our, our listeners get it. Is that in order for the Gulf of Mexico to be this place that continues to produce energy, that continues to produce climate advantage energy, continues to provide five billion dollars or so to the Federal Treasury, continues to provide funding for land, water, conservation fund, the Gold Mesa, the Great American Outdoors Act. One of the key things is there has to be right, an additional supply of leases that companies can actually pay money to the government to acquire those leases and one of the things I say to people when you know when you acquire a lease from the government the only thing that you're guaranteed to do is spend more money to see what it's really worth right because there's a whole lot of 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 research that goes into that tell us how does the federal government leasing work so that the folks in America can really appreciate it's a, it's a process that's been around for a while. You, you got any insight on, on that process, Eric,
1: that you could share with us? No, oh, it's a great question. And I start very basic. When it comes to energy, if you want to produce it, you need acreage. You need, you need acreage to go out there and find it and develop it and produce it. That's whether it's wind, solar, if you're mining, oil and gas, you need acreage. And in order to get acreage for oil and gas in the offshore, they need to have lease sales. A lease sale basically puts out the the blocks that are three mile by three mile, 5,760 acres, I think they are. And and when you go to a lease sale and you're able to get one because you're the top bidder for that acreage, you get the right to explore on that acreage for five to 10 years. And you have to pay for it up front. You got to pay for it while you have it. You got to pay more based on royalties if you start producing energy. So we need the ability to lease so that we can find new energy sources, find additional supplies of oil and gas, and then ultimately produce it and get it to market so that the American consumer has U.S. produced oil and gas supplies. Uh, they can go through the refineries to make them into all the products that we use every day, uh, petrochemical plants, um, natural gas for everything we use. Uh, we, we need that process. After you get a lease, you need permitting. Uh, Fortunately, we had a a, a lawsuit filed by our friends uh, throughout the vessel community, uh, the OMSA type companies in Louisiana, uh, when there was a permitting uh, moratorium, a permitorium put in place. And the court ruled that you you can't do that. Under these contracts, you have a right to be able to get out there and explore for and develop the leases. So the administ- this current administration ha- has generally not blocked permitting because the courts have been on industry side that you just can't do that. It's arbitrary, you can't do that. And then you need a regulatory framework that's in place that allows you to do that. You can't have things like some arbitrary decision staying. you can't produce because um, we-, we think that there might be a species in this area. That's something that happened last year. Or you can't arbitrarily stop the, the, the water permits the EPA puts out there, that's something that happened last year. There's things that can happen on the regulatory side where you can disrupt the ability of companies to operate. But first and foremost, you need acreage, you need lease sales. The way they do lease sales uh, out of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act is it requires there to be a schedule of lease sales through a leasing program that covers five years. We had one that went from 2017 to 2022, and then it ended without this administration following it up. As it was required to do with a 2022 to 2027 program, instead they delayed and they put one out that starts um, in 2024. Um, where we are now it goes through 2029 and it only has three lease cells in that. You go back to the 90s with uh, Bush one, 20 lease cells. Uh, Clinton about 20 lease sales. Uh, Bush two, you had you know 20 about 20 lease cells. Um, Obama, you had 15 and then 11 lease sales uh, and, and then now we're looking at three. So you see the trajectory we've gone on uh, and, and all that leads to uncertainty and unpredictability when you tie that to the regulatory actions and these companies have to commit find and commit billions of dollars to these projects. so these these this money, this capital that these companies are trying to find and commit is is also, Money that could shift to other parts of the world—it doesn't necessarily have to go to the Gulf of Mexico. The oil will be produced. We want to produce it here. Our companies want to invest here, but it's now vulnerable because these uncertainties on the leasing and regulatory side through this administration, uh, and that uncertainty is 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 creating a pause in the minds of the investors and in our companies where they have to decide: Do we want to do it here for the long term, or, or should we look at other parts of the world? We're confident and hopeful that we'll be able to continue to do it here because we do have the established industry, and long-term, historically, we've had the stability uh, that we need. But uh, there is that uncertainty that, that we don't like to see.
0: Well, you know, I want to come back to the statement for our listeners to really kind of hear this. What Eric said is it's going to be produced somewhere, and why is it going to be produced somewhere? Because I think you heard in the 2023 State of the Union address that the president said the quiet part out loud. He said, we are going to need oil for the next decade, and I think, and beyond. And so it's going to be produced. Why not produce it where there is the lower carbon intensity opportunities. There's opportunities to fund the government. There's opportunities to fund land and water conservation funds, create local jobs, and, and again, have the red, white, and blue doing it. And, and Eric, one of the things that I, I think that I've used to kind of compare this whole uh, new leasing is, is a recent example that I think most Americans can relate to. So in 2020, we saw what happened after COVID or during COVID, I should say, with the automobile dealers car lots just really really drying up okay and it was just really no inventory of automobile dealers if you wanted to get a new vehicle it was very very difficult to go you know in 2019 the lots were full in 2020 they were empty and again for a lot of reasons right but one of those reasons was because we, as a country, had made a decision that we were going to outsource microchips to a foreign country. And the microchip processing that we were looking for, I think, it was coming from Taiwan. And we all of a sudden got in a jam where no inventory meant we had a lower economic activity around automobiles. I think that's an example that most people can look at, that new leases or inventory— That allows for economic activity and not every lease that's purchased is used. Some of them, you know, are evaluated, uh, looked at from the geology, doesn't work out. And companies turn them back in uh, through operation of the lease itself. Right. So clearly, clearly, in order to be able to 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 make things happen in this offshore sector of the Gulf of Mexico, we got to have access to
1: the acreage. Right. Absolutely. And your example is great. When you think about acreage, the more acreage you have, the bigger of a portfolio of leases you have, the more likely you're going to be to find and produce oil and gas in the offshore or any region. And that's that's kind of gets lost in it, that there's this accusation that you already have leases. But as you stated, this is still an exploratory business. This is still conventional oil and gas development. Globally, there's still a higher percentage that you're not going to find oil by drilling a hundred million or a $200 million well, then you will find oil. And companies should be the ones that we defer to because they have the expertise, they are out there competing, they know what the data looks like, and they need a, a large portfolio of leases to create the greatest potential for them to find and produce oil in the most cost-effective, efficient, and environmentally responsible way.
0: And the big winner, the big winner is the consumer, the USA energy consumer who now has access in this particular case to affordable, reliable, predictable energy. And and of course we've kind of gone away from that. So, so we're hopeful that, um, the nation's energy policy would certainly uh, take a look at the advantages of the Gulf and reflect upon those. And, and it's not too late for a course correction. We do need a course correction. Uh, perhaps it can take the five-year plan back to the locker room, if you would, and provide more opportunities for access to acreage because at the end result, the big loser is going to be number one, the consumer, and number two, the environment based on the environmental metrics. Because Eric's right. We are going to get it from somewhere. Don't take my word for it. Again, take the president said it at the State of Union address. we going to need oil for the next decade and beyond. So let's make sure we're getting it where it has the most climate advantages. And certainly Gulf of Mexico is is one of those areas. Eric, I want to talk a little bit about national security. And when we talk about relying on folks who perhaps do not share our values, often do not share our values, what kind of threat does some of these actions and this this hostility from Washington, what kind of national security issues uh, arise out of that?
1: Yes, energy security is national security. And we saw that with the unfortunate decision to pause uh, LNG uh, export approvals that just came out of the administration recently. That's a great example where... I, in my prior job 10 years ago or so, uh, I worked with a group called LNG Allies, and they were put together to help create a partnership, a, a collaborative effort between uh, Eastern and Central European countries who don't have energy security like we do and who want U.S. energy supplies, both natural gas and, and oil, and they need it so that they can um Counter The geopolitical tool that is used by Vladimir Putin uh, against them uh, in in the Eastern European region. That's just an example I throw out there where we need policies that recognize that our ability to produce energy here means that we're less reliant on foreign suppliers, but also means our allies have an additional supplier through the US to make them more energy secure uh, in their own backyard. This cannot be uh, emphasized enough, this point. Uh, it, it really is something that gets back to not only what happens here in the U.S., but to our allies, but a- as we've seen over the past couple of years with what's happening in the Middle East, with what's happening in the Ukrainian and Russian conflict that our own military personnel are, are often called upon to get out there and help police the world and, and make sure that we're exercising our power as an energy superpower and a military superpower to make sure that the world— has the opportunity to have stability and peace in these regions where energy is used geopolitically in a negative way against people in their own backyards, where they see that as a threat constantly. So energy is national security. Producing more energy here helps us, helps our allies, and we've we got to make sure that we maintain that as a priority in a policy discussion.
0: You know, one of the things I recently saw, Eric, was some of the pushback or reversal of some of the whole kind of LNG public policy coming out of D.C. And one of the things, again, I like to share with our listeners is that on the strength of our farmers, on the work ethic of our farmers, we have fed the world. We have an opportunity on the strength of our oil and gas workers to help fuel the world that LNG is one of those uh, opportunities. Feeding the world and fueling the world gives us more energy security. Gives us more national security makes the world safer, gives us an opportunity to export our values of freedoms of religions, freedoms of the press, freedoms of assembly, all those things when folks are not tied to unfavorable regimes for their energy supply. Because at the end of the day, folks got to have energy and we have an ability, we believe, to provide it to them with the environmental and climate advantages. I want to thank you, Eric. Certainly want to say to you again, appreciate the work that you've done. I want to give you an opportunity to close and, and make sure that that you can get us that your website where people can visit you all to see the great work that you're doing and, and what I, one of the things I really love about you guys is when you kind of stumble on to something or you're digging and you find something you put your money where your mouth is and you say let's go get it studied, and let's kind of put some some real strong intel around it. It's not emotion. Y'all lead with facts and do a really, really good job. So again, I want to give you an opportunity to, to close, and I want to thank you again
1: for being with us. I want to thank you for having me. It, it's a great job being able to represent offshore energy sector. Uh, as you're well aware, that means we're representing the workers that you represent, USA Energy workers. Uh, throughout the Gulf Coast and in Louisiana, I was down uh, in New Orleans uh, just this week, uh, doing some good work, trying to make sure that we're uh, working together to create policies that make the best sense um, for our nation. Now, I will tell you that NOIA is still fighting. You know, we, we have had some success when it comes to getting legislation passed. We worked closely with Senator Manchin, who's the chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. After those lease sales were canceled by this administration and after lease sale 257 was thrown out by the courts, Senator Manchin, you know, we worked with him and he made sure that in the legislation that passed, that they reinstated lease cell 257 and that they put in requirements that lease cell 259 and 261 uh, needed to be held. And they were held and they were successful lease cells, And that kind of put us in a position where we're working out to wait years and years, which we may have to do. But we're continuing to do that. And another thing that happened that was interesting is that Senator Manchin created a bit of a link between offshore oil and gas and offshore wind. In order to have an offshore wind uh, lease cell go forward and to issue those wind leases, the federal government through the Department of the Interior must first have an offshore oil and gas lease cell. And the reason why this administration included three offshore oil and gas lease cells in this plan is because they need to in order to do the offshore wind lease sales. So we worked on a lot of that We didn't come up with the idea of linking those two together, but we did push Senator Manchin to try to include mandatory oil and gas and mandatory wind lease sales, but we're not done because there's still a gap. There's still um, some some opportunities that we think need to be put back into play for our industry to invest. So we're working hard. We're working with both sides of the aisle. We are not a a Republican or a Democratic organization. We look at our issues in a nonpartisan way so that we're representing Uh, our industry the best way we can, but then we we do our outreach and advocacy in a bipartisan way. And we're here in Washington representing the industry. Uh, If you're interested and you're not a member, look at our website, uh, noia.org. Follow us on LinkedIn, on, on, um, Social media, we're out there having a conversation, make sure we're getting the good word out. We're telling the good story. We have a good story to tell. Um, it's great that we have Scott as a leader, as a champion of the industry. He's telling the story. We just all need to work together to make sure that the public is aware of how great this industry is and, and how it is just absurd uh, that we would transfer all these benefits and all this strategic advantage we have to other parts of the world. Let's keep it here. Let's keep it in the Gulf of Mexico. Let's keep it in Louisiana, and let's charge ahead to make sure we do that together.
0: Well that's great and uh The only thing I can say after that is hallelujah. So I appreciate you, my friend. Great job. And we look forward to seeing you again as we are consistently elevating and celebrating the USA Energy Worker here. We would invite all of our listeners to visit USAEnergyWorkers.com. There's a nonpartisan petition there designed to petition our leaders across the country at all levels to work together to fashion sensible energy policy. And at the same time, when doing so, Always remember the traditional oil and gas workers in that, given the advantages that we all know and we've talked about today. So thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Looking forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. This has been Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA Energy Worker, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. For more episodes or to find out more, visit us online at OGGN.com.